Katamaria and welcome to First Up, it is Ratu, that's Tuesday the 27th of September. Kornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up we cross to the UK for reaction to their government's $85 billion tax cut package and what it's doing. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis talks business confidence with us this morning. In Moscow, opposition to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine intensifies. You're going to hear how Kapahaka and Contemporary Theatre are joining forces and that after 11 days lost in the Auckland Botanic Gardens burrito, the celebrity toy poodle has been found alive. I just saw this little bit of movement on the side of the stream and I was like, oh my god, I found him! Oh my god! Atamaria, welcome to First Up. We have a wide and varied menu for you this morning on the programme, or even a programme could be. Uh, we begin this morning in the UK, where, if you listen carefully, do you hear that? That's the sound of the pound plummeting. Down to record lows, and joining me from London, uh, of course, this is the London of King Charles III nowadays, it's our correspondent, Ali J. Morena Ali. And that pound is in free fall, plus... Um, that hasn't really been helped by the announcement of the the tax cuts, has it? So can you can you bundle it all up for us and, and give us the explainer? Atamari, Nathan, I can do that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the biggest story today for sure. I mean, the pound hit a record low against the US dollar, the lowest it's been since 1985, I think. Just a few minutes ago, before I started talking to you, the Bank of England um, have come out and announced that they've uh, come out and said that they won't hesitate to raise interest rates. So they've said they're monitoring developments in financial markets very closely, and that's because, as you're saying, in light of these significant repricing of financial assets is what they've called it. And since they've said that, the pound has bounced back just slightly. So it was at one uh, 1.3 to the dollar. It's now 1.6. And people have been waiting um, all of today to kind of see what the Bank of England would, will say and see if that would have an effect on it. There also, people are thinking now just a week or so ago, they raised the interest rate to 2.5%. Um, people talking as well, it could be as high as 6% next year as well. So it's quite, I mean, it is, if you're looking at it as a day-to-day thing, it is complicated. It's not easy to understand sort of what effect this will have on sort of the day-to-day um, consumer, I suppose, or the day, just person living in the UK as well. So lots of talk about the fact that the UK has had years of these low interest um, mortgages and low interest rates and people will see their mortgage payments start to go up. Sort of millions of people will see this. Um, as you said, why is this happening? It's to do with Friday and the mini budget, or they called it a fiscal event because you, um, you can't call it a budget as a formal budget has to go to uh, the Office for Budget Responsibility. Yeah. It has to be a, a fiscal so. event. That's a great one. <laughs> exactly. But it's been referred to, I mean, that's what it's been called, the mini budget all way around. I mean, before um, Liz Truss became the leader of the Conservative Party, before she became Prime Minister, she was talking about the fact that they would cut taxes. So on Friday, Friday morning, uh, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, stood up in the House of Commons and announced these new policies. And there was lots in there. But as you say, the big ones were to do with tax cuts and were to do with borrowing. So one of the main things they said is they'll remove the top tax rates. So currently, if you earn over £150,000 a year, so $300,000 roughly, or that will have changed actually quite a lot now, um, you would get taxed at 40 45p 
to the pound. And so not anymore. They've taken out those two top tax rates. Uh, they've also said they've ruled out a windfall tax on um, profits for energy companies. They're going to borrow more to subsidize energy bills and do this. And it's this uh, reversing in national insurance contributions that was brought in by Rishi Sunak. All these different things in one go, especially the tax cuts that have caused concern. So on Friday, that's when we saw the pound drop completely a little bit of a lift today as I said they're talking I mean it's also the time of um, party conferences so there was a Labour Party conference today and the shadow Chancellor of the Labour Party Rachel Reeves said uh, they would bring back that 45p tax rate and they've called this budget a tax cut for the wealthiest and accused the government of fanning the flames of the fall of the pound so lots of kind of it's not it's not a sort of easy fun story to talk about I don't think but it is the biggest one in the news at the moment and lots of people are trying to break it down and say this mm. is what it will look like this is how you can understand it and how it's going to affect you in the next couple of years and i'm sure there'll be some uh depending on you know how they're aligned some hey it's not that bad this is natural others going this is the worst thing ellie can you just explain to me this so you know how in new zealand the last 10 to 15 years or so maybe a little bit longer than that new zealanders were told you know what put your money in houses because you'll get this free equity you know and there's equity it works while you don't whatever and a lot of people stretch themselves to be able to afford a mortgage or another mortgage and you know um, a change in rates could be disastrous here can you tell me is it a bit like that in England are there, are there people you know is there a significant amount of the population who saw it as an investment as well and will be terrified of these rising rates Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's being talked about quite a lot at the moment is the fact that it has been about, I think, about 15 years of these very low interest mortgages and people, lots of people have bought property and will be faced with the fact that those interest rates will rise. And if you, you know, you can fix it for a while, but they'll be looking at a lot more money than is expected. And it is, I mean, it's millions of people who will be affected by this. They've also announced as part of it a cut in stamp duty, which is what you have here when you, um, if you buy a new house and it depends on the value of the house. So they've said, if you're a first time buyer, you won't have to pay as much stamp duty on different properties. But even that is a sort of a couple of thousand pounds when actually there could be well there will be millions of people who are affected by this because they've bought a property in the past couple of years the past sort of 15 20 years well uh not a, a great start there for for liz truss and uh her chancellor quasi quieting as well in the first week as they go ellie thank you very much for your time there yeah just a uh, that's so the, yes the plummeting pound for them so just to, to reiterate there uh, the pound sterling closed at a dollar three that's against the American dollar uh, early on Monday before regaining some ground and going back up to one dollar and eight cents and of course if you followed it over the years I mean, the pound sterling has always been the biggest strongest mightiest currency that I've known in my lifetime um, yeah things not going so well there for them uh, in those terms it is 11 past five and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radadier. If you want, yeah, actually, we're just um, um, having a bit of a thought before. Uh, the King Charles, so it's a, nearly said Prince Charles, King Charles, um, 
How are you rating the first two weeks out of 10 highlights so far <laughs> of it? Has he got any there as well? 2101 as well. And um, yesterday, did you follow it all along uh, with the memorial service uh, for Queen Elizabeth II? You can email us first up at rnz.co.nz or text us 2101. We're going to go to uh, Japan now where convenience stores are telling customers no more forks but in a very polite Japanese way. But first, our Tokyo correspondent Chris Gilbert explained why the government is looking to spend whopping great sums of money on the country's defences. They review their defence budget every five years and it's coming up for another review in the fiscal year starting 2023. And uh, they're looking to up it to 279 billion US dollars. And, you know, that's effectively doubling it. And and what they want to do and and what the uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida wants to do and what the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe wanted to do is to make the defence budget 2% of GDP. That is their goal. And it's been usually 1% because, of course, Japan is not meant to have an army. It has a self-defense force, but in the constitution, you know, no army. And so why do you need a defense budget? Mm. So you can really see the trend here that as they want to lift the defense budget, they obviously want to change the circumstances that they can create a military here. And uh, this defense spending lift, which uh, looks like it's going to happen uh, in, the, in the coming five years, will get very close to that 2% goal that the leaders of the party here, the LDP, have wanted. And of course, the official line from the government is that, well, we need more drones and we need more long-range missiles and we need more naval destroyers because of the uh, perceived threat from North Korea and from China, when really it's just the, the policy outlook, I guess you could say, or paradigm that the leaders of the LDP are viewing foreign policy through at the moment. It's all part of their long-term plan, regardless of the tensions in the area. So it looks like they're very much on track to up the defence budget and, and somewhat remilitarize Japan. $279 billion US dollars worth. That is an incredible, this is a staggering amount of money. That was, that was all very dear to the heart of uh, the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, wasn't it? It was very dear to his heart. It was what he was working towards. Um, you know, he he want he was very close to the Americans. He wanted to you know fund uh, the defense forces here. He wanted to you know uh, subsidize the army bases, the U.S. army bases in Okinawa and th- elsewhere throughout the country. And he wanted to you know change the constitution to allow Japan to have a military again. And this will be very um, pertinent today, uh, which is the day of his state funeral his very controversial state funeral today is the day and there have been protests all the way up until pretty much now against this you know there's 70 percent public opposition in japan against the shinzo abe state funeral it's not a normal thing again let's just remember the japan to have these state funerals it's only been one in the last 60 years mm. for the prime minister who effectively took japan out of the ashes of World War II and began to rebuild the country again. Before that, it's very much tied to, you know, like wartime propaganda events. So it's not there's not really a, a basis for these events to take place. And the fact that it is taking place is very controversial, especially since the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida had, doesn't really have the, the consent of the Senate or the consent of the people to go ahead and do it, but they are doing it. You know, there's going to be 700 guests from 217 countries. You know, the city is locked down. The Australian Prime Minister is here. It is all happening. But what this is effectively is going to be at the end of the day is it's going to be a legacy-making event for Shinzo Abe to kind of crystallize, the, I guess, the legitimacy of what the LDP wants, the ruling party wants, which is to fund the military and uh, continue, I guess, the uh, very hawkish foreign policy that Abe pursued.
Finally, uh, some of the Japanese convenience stores there, uh, customers when they go in and ask for a fork are going to be told, no, you have to have chopsticks instead. What's behind that? Yeah, I know. Well, what is with that, Nate? No, it's it's because it's because they don't want to use any more plastic. Japan, not just you know like lovers of using、uh, chopsticks, but also you know a lot of plastic is used in Japan, and、uh, you know as part of a a push, I guess, countrywide to、uh, decentivize or deter the use of plastic and incentivize the use of bamboo and other wooden instruments. You know, hotels are switching out. You know, their hair. Brushes and their combs, and for bamboo and, and wooden things. And so, I guess, I guess, Family Mart is following suit. You know,、uh, they have sixteen thousand stores throughout Japan, and they say that their new policy to replace a plastic fork with a wooden pair of chopsticks will reduce plastic waste by two hundred and fifty metric tons. Let's not ask too many questions about how sustainable the wood is in the use of the chopsticks. Let's just celebrate the fact that their heart is in the right place. That's Chris Gilbert in Japan.、Uh, double banger here, two one oh one. If you've been to Japan, let us know.、Um, number one, the packaging. Did you find an incredible amount of packaging? Or if you've been to Japan, can you help describe it for people who haven't been? And the second one was, if you went to Family Mart, did you have the chicken fillet? And do you think about it on a on a daily basis? The crumbed one in the little paper bag. Um, also,、uh, actually, speaking of news with Japan,、uh, breaking news that Russia's F SB security services say that they've detained the Japanese consul to Vladivostok. So、uh, we will be speaking with Stuart Smith in Moscow later in the program, and we'll see if he can update us on that. It's seventeen and a half past five. I'm Nathan Rarere, and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. So, as I just said,、uh, Stuart Smith is with us in Moscow. We'll speak to him later in the show. Obviously, pre-、uh, protests against Vladimir Putin's、uh, military mobilisation,、uh, and holy guacamole, burrito is back. Yeah. Well, Haka Theatre returns to Tamaki Makoto's Altea Centre, so Rangatahi from eight schools across the region will be presenting original works on stage. Kura Te Ua has pioneered this unique blend of kapahaka and contemporary performance arts and created the show, which is called Otaya. So I asked her to describe how Haka Theatre differs from the kapahaka that we might normally recognise. I guess the main distinction, say, with haka theatre and perhaps kapahaka or any other performance experience, is that one. The first thing is that there is something that breathes and lives in te ao haka, which is around the spirit. It's around te reo Maori. It's around the process in which work is created on a framework that. You know that is from, I guess, Maiaran or around the fundamentals and the principles of how we operate through Wananga, through kinship and unity. So there's there's that component that's involved, but also as a visual or an experience, as a performance experience, there's a lot of haka melodies and harmonies that you know is really distinct to te ao haka.、Hmm. So there's the, the haka melodies. There are the ways in which our stories are told, and although. For now, and the and the de- definition and the continuing of haka theatre, the structures for some schools have come from their own traditional storytelling. So the the stories from say their ancestors or their have dug into their kete from Korero Tukuiho. So they're not necessarily stories from Shakespeare or、um, you know. Perhaps Western stories that we often see on Broadway. However, there are stories that have come from Kōrero Tukuiho, from 
kōrero that have been handed down through our ancestors, and some of them have been completely made up. So right. those, I guess, are the two distinctions at this point in time. And, mm. and it's quite beautiful too, because a lot of those stories are so rich, and they were buried for so long that you know, like people didn't get to find out about them. So I imagine for the schools themselves, that's really exciting to get in and you know make it a part of their learning and that as well. So tell me, you must have to give them a bit of a lead up. How long did notice did they get for this? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's um. So we we started. We we met with the schools uh, originally. We had ten schools last year. We met with them in December last year. We ran our pilot program in Mata, during the time of Matariki last year, where we had three schools. So we had a couple of months to look at how we were going to prepare for the next season. And of course, a few dates changed. We're looking at it becoming an annual flagship Matariki event. So because of the times we shifted this year to September, we met with them in December last year. We briefed on the Kopapa, and then we in March, sorry, May of this year, all of the schools came to Aotea Te Pukapu, where Auckland Live, who have Hawaii to have partnered with, to you know support and create this event. We held them at the Aotea Centre inside the Kirite Kanoa, so they get to get a sense of not only the performance space, but also they could come together from the outset under the maru or the banner of the kaupapa that could hold them for the next remaining months. From there, they spent about six weeks with kaituhi or writers to write and, and explore and develop scripts of up to 15 minutes that, ah. of kaupapa that they really chose to talk about issues that were really significant to them and where they're from and the stories that they wanted to tell. So that was the beginning of their creative process. The next part of the process was Auckland Live and Hawaikitu working with a bunch of Matanga or specialised practitioners. With the schools, we held two workshops at Aotea Centre. And the idea around that was that so that we could build the school's creative teams because in the industry, we need more Māori in the industry that can step into, say, the production areas of, of haka theatre, not only in the performance and the creative aspects, but mm. lighting and sound and kaku. So we ran a couple of workshops there for their creative teams, which meant that they could go back to their schools and lead as the leading teams for the following months. Over the last three weeks was, I guess, the gear change in the creative process where six ringatohu or directors have been working intensively with the schools over the past three weeks and will do for the remaining two weeks just to help to weave their story together, to incorporate the components or the elements of production and theatre that will elevate their stories. So we're in a we're in a really intense part of the process at the moment where the Ringatohu are working quite intensely, intensively with the schools and the schools there are so many kaupapa that are competing for their time, including the secondary school kapaka nationals to Ohaka exams. There's a whole lot of things, and, and I just really feel like they're doing a great job. The kayako are the, are the big heroes. You know, they're, they're working hard to provide the opportunities and make sure their students are getting the best. Yeah. Kura, it's, do you know what's, what I've really sat here and smiled at is listening to you speak about it. I can hear your passion, but the best bit is I can hear the joy. <laughs> I can hear the joy in your voice. There's a smile when you speak about this, about the chance that they're getting, you know, 15 minutes, it's a heck of a time to fill in with a lot there too. And that as well. I mean, like it's, you know, it's it's one night only. So it's it's very much unmissable, I think, for everybody there to, to be there as well. Mm. But you've spoken of the joy that you've got for them going through this journey and that for yourself, it, what are you at right now? You're a bit nervous. Are you excited for them? Like, how do you feel? Oh man, I'm so, it's really intense, but you know, like I was at 
Waiorea last night and I was there till nine o'clock after having been through, you know, organising with production meetings and other schools. It's just all, it's all going on. But I found myself in the middle organising and there would be no other place that I would want to be right now. It's nine o'clock at night. I've just come off the back of a tour with Black Grace and the exhaustion is easy to set in right now, but I'm like flying off passion. It's so... It's a kind of unexplainable, but when I was at school, I thought, man, it would be so cool to have something like this and to be able to provide the opportunity for schools. Kayako, not only are they getting, you know, NCEA credits for Te Haka Dance and Theatre, which is a resource that we've created as well alongside this so that they can actually get credits alongside the creating of the process. It's just, yeah, it's a massive vibe to be, wave to be writing on. One of the other things that we're also preparing for alongside this is during the dress rehearsal of all the schools, we've partnered with Irakati, who are hosting a rangatahi workshop outside on the Altea Square. So in essence, we'll have 28 schools from Tamaki Makoto coming to participate or join and watch the dress rehearsal which would be open dress rehearsal inside the Aotea Centre and then outside on the square is just a whole lot of activations their mentors the people they look up to it's a rangatahi expo that's going to be really exciting for them to be a part of as well that is the very enthusiastic voice of Kura Te Ua. She is the uh, Artistic Director of Hawaii 2. And you can check out Otaya at the Kiri Theatre this Thursday, the 29th of September. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 27th of September. Everybody who grew up in the, uh, the city where I grew up knows that 1066 was the Battle of Hastings because that was written on the clock tower there in the middle of Hastings. Anyway, 1066 all gets underway today. It was delayed by bad weather, but on this day, William, Duke of Normandy went, set sail! And they, except he said it in a different language, uh, they set sail for the southeastern coast of England across there from Normandy. Of course, that would be known as the Norman Conquest, starting this day, 1066. Spoiler alert, they arrive tomorrow. Okay. In 1825, George Stevenson's contraption called Locomotion 1 became the first steam locomotive to carry passengers on a public rail line and there were fears as the first passenger train reached speeds of 15 miles per hour between Stockton and Darlington in England. And this day in 1922, there was a new form of technology. It was the first 3D movie, so it was called The Power of Love. Now this was in the days when you had a, a red lens and a green lens and your two glasses that you wore. But the cool bit about The Power of Love was that you could decide whether you got a happy or a tragic ending depending on which eye you looked through at the end. So the green was happy and the red was tragic. There you are. Speaking of movies, I love this movie. In 1987, The Princess Bride came out, 35 years old today. Great quotes like, inconceivable, as you wish. Have fun storming the castle, boys. It was, uh, remember the, the story of uh, Wesley going to rescue Princess Buttercup. And uh, it rates a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. The uh, TV show Cracker first appeared on this day in 1993. And in 2013, following the success of the single Royals, Lord put out an album called Pure Heroin. And we, what do you think of that world? The world loved it. Uh, debuted at number three in the United States and went on to become one of the biggest selling albums of 2014. And that is uh, what happened on this day in history, the day of our life that we call the 27th of September.
Joining us now from the business team, it is Mr Anand Zaki. Kia ora Anand, how are you? Morena, very well. A short week. Yeah, and it's well, it's an interesting one in the finance world, I'm sure. Like, I imagine it's like those submarine movies where just before it dives and the red light goes off with stories of the British pound uh, or something like that. There is many things to cover. But tell me about this this bit where you know people want to get into investing quite young. Social media is uh, what is this? This is the new go to. Well, yeah, it seems like it. Um, you know, questions. Uh, there's some questions about the quality of information young investors are getting, and it's come after a survey of uh, New Zealanders by the price comparison site uh, Finder. It found uh, 44% of people under 25 get investment advice from social media. So it's quite a big reliance there, and. That's followed by uh, advice from family, um, the news and finance podcasts. And uh, if you compare it to older folk, uh, just 3% of baby boomers, 9% of Gen X and a quarter of millennials use social media for investment tips. Now, uh, Finder say, you know, there's been a rise in the so-called finfluencers, which is a a new term. I, I hadn't heard of that before, but it's a byproduct of the uh, hustle culture that's quite common online. I think you'll know uh, all about this, Nathan. You know, it feels like you always see some rags to riches story online. and It's always uh, some yeah. guy in wraparound sunglasses with uh, a yeah. muscle shirt on going, yeah, this is me driving in my convertible and I did it because grind, hustle, did weights. That one. Yeah, that one. And yeah. look at my Rolex or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, and you know, you see them on social media. These influencers uh, who claim to know which stocks are going to be the next big thing, um, but they often have no formal training in finance. And uh, in a lot of these cases, they're actually trying to sell products like eBooks or online courses. Now, uh, we we spoke to the Financial Markets Authority about this, um, and there are some good news. They say their own research suggests. Younger people uh, already treat financial information uh, they find on social media with a healthy dose of scepticism. And uh, they say while younger people do consult social media more, they still put more trust into your traditional institutions. So, look, I think we shouldn't be too worried about the younger generation. Yeah. Uh, Very quickly, tell me about this TikTok. Uh, Whilst we're talking about the kids and the social media, uh, TikTok could face a fine over children's privacy. What's this? Yeah, it's uh, they could face a fifty-one million dollar fine or a twenty-seven million pound fine in the UK. It is provisional. Um, the UK's Information Commissioner's Office found the platform may have processed the data of under thirteens without appropriate consent, um, and they say the breach of data protection law happened over more than two years until mid July twenty twenty, and it hasn't drawn to final conclusions yet. Uh, TikTok. Uh, is disputing the findings, saying um, that they are provisional. But the UK's uh, Information Commissioner, John Edwards, who used to be the Privacy Commissioner here, uh, he says uh, companies providing digital services have uh, legal obligations to put protections in place, um, and they think that TikTok has fallen short of meeting that requirement.
Crikey. Uh, thank you very much. Anand, there is uh, Anand Zaki. You can hear more from Anand and the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's go to your money markets now, uh, where your Kiwi dollar is buying the following 56.4 US cents, 87.48 Australian cents, 59.23 Euro cents, 52.86 Japanese, uh, sorry, Brit- British pence. I'll do that again. 52.86. British pence, uh, 81.59 Japanese yen and 4.04 yuan. So uh, that's where we're at right now. Let's go to Australia now, actually, where divers have found what they believe to be an unexploded bomb from the Second World War in Darwin Harbour. Now, that harbour can be a dangerous place at the best of times, and locals fear there could be even more explosives hidden in the depths. The ABC's Angus Randall reports. In the green depths of Darwin Harbour, a hunk of metal could be waiting to explode. Divers conducting an underwater survey have discovered what they believe might be a live mortar. It's a semi-regular occurrence in Darwin, a legacy of the deadliest and largest military attack on Australian soil in history. Steve McIver is the hangar manager at the Darwin Aviation Museum. Well, I wouldn't be surprised because, as we all know, when Darwin was attacked on that morning of the 19th of February 1942, the war in Darwin lasted over 20 months. It wasn't just a one-off Pearl Harbor type of an attack. It lasted for uh, uh, over 20 months, almost two years. A 250-metre exclusion zone has been set up around the object. The Defence Force is now in charge of safely removing the possible bomb. Steve McIver doubts this will be the last time divers in the harbour get a nasty surprise. Near the end of the war, yeah, there was a, a fair major clean-up because they did find a lot of ordnance and bombs uh, on the uh, foreshores of Darwin. But, of course, you, at times you are going to miss some. Oh, and also some will get washed up on, on shore. So I'm not surprised they're still finding them. You'd have to be pretty brave to be diving in the harbour. You've got crocodiles, sharks, and now unexploded bombs you've got to deal with. Never a dull moment up here. There's always something to watch out for. And don't forget the stingers as well. <laughs> Darwin was first bombed on the 19th of February 1942. The attack levelled large parts of the city. On that day, Japan dropped more than twice the number of bombs on Darwin compared to the Pearl Harbour attack a few months before. But the raids didn't stop there. Dr Tom Lewis is a military historian who's written extensively on the bombing of Darwin. Most uh, people in Darwin have been evacuated, of course, for most of the war. The military were those that remain and some essential civilians. But uh, not very uh, nice having people drop high explosives on your head. I've been to war myself and (laughs) certainly terrifying. The bombs dropped on Darwin ranged in weight from 60 kilograms to one tonne, and a bomb that spent 80 years in the ocean can still be dangerous. Raising a bomb to the surface means a difference in pressure. That change in pressure as you bring the bomb up on a sling, or if you were really stupid by by hand, um, that can set things off. Once you detonate the course, it's it's finished. Um, burying it would be a bad idea because somebody, some other person might dig it up in future centuries. Fronting up to Antiques Roadshow with that. You're either going to have a whole lot of people around or they're just going to clear the set immediately. Anyway, it is uh, 22 to 6. I'm Nathan Radere and you are with First Up here on RNZ National. Still to come, we're in Moscow as opposition to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine intensifies. And Burrito, the celebrity toy poodle, has been found after 11 days lost in Auckland's Botanic Gardens.
know, when Mansa Musa, who was the richest human being to ever live, travelled to Egypt in the 1300s, his wealth was so great that he actually crashed the price of gold in the market. Same thing happened when we sent Corin Dan to Great Britain with the company credit card. It was so hefty that uh, the pound has crashed, I believe, but Corin Dan has uh, made it back to New Zealand. Uh, the professionals at Morning Report are set to go after six. Kia ora, Corin. Corin, how are you? I'm very well. Kia ora, welcome. Uh, yes, nice to be back. Yes, yeah, the pound, just as well I got back in time before Far it did out. crash. Uh, it's a big story, actually, and it's having some reverberations around global markets. Um but the New Zealand dollar, though, is also falling swiftly as well. And that's probably the more pertinent story to New Zealanders. That is this morning I was looking, it was about 56.5 mm. versus the US, which is getting down to the level it hit. It had a, a big dip when the pandemic first hit, got to around 55. That was an 11 year low. So it's not far off some quite low lows. Uh, that is problematic for New Zealand because it means all those imported goods we bring in will cost more, and that is going to keep inflation roaring, make the Reserve Bank uh, job harder, interest rates higher, all those sort of things. Good for our exporters. Exporters are loving it. Well, they love it in the long term, but but right now it's not what we need. But then the US is dealing with its inflation problem because it's got nice high currency. Anyway, we're going to talk lots about that this morning because it's actually a, a very sort of a big move. That pound has sort of just got people really focused on that stuff. The Italian elections, of course, mm. uh, and we'll have a Merrill debate uh, with the Christchurch Merrill debate after eight this morning. Grant Robertson is in too, the finance minister, so he will no doubt be questioned about the dollar and other matters. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Corinne Dan. There you are, with all that is important and good, and it's coming up after six. Well, as we do every week, we get to hear from the Deputy Leader of the National Party, Nicola Willis. We talked about business confidence, or the lack thereof, among CEOs, but I started by asking what she made of yesterday's service in Wellington to commemorate Queen Elizabeth II. I thought it was a very special service and a moment of reflection, really, for those who attended and for the country. It was very well done. The singing was beautiful. All those who spoke did a great job. And I felt really proud to be a New Zealander and to be able to have an occasion like that together. Yeah, I thought everyone everyone looked really nice. Let's move to uh, something else. What are your thoughts on police surveillance? Because I see that some of the camera networks uh, that police use to track the three COVID-infected women around Northland are spreading widely around the country. Are you a fan of this, of police being able to tap into camera networks? From a principled perspective, I think it's very important that any surveillance agrees with the law, that is that it respects privacy law as it stands and that information is collected in a way that is lawful. In saying that, I think that the closed circuit cameras, which we have in Wellington, for example, have been really useful to police in both preventing crime and also ensuring prosecutions can occur where facts are contested in court. So I see that they do have a role to play in policing, but it's really important we do that in a lawful way. The government says the Russian ambassador will not be expelled. Obviously, there's a war going on right now, which is dominating all the news around the world. Would National have made that same call? Well, look, we have called for that, and that's because we think it's important that New Zealand sends a very strong message about how we regard Russia's actions. The way they have behaved towards Ukraine is unconscionable, it's unacceptable, uh, and actually, uh, do we really want a representative of Russia in our country right now? No. Right. Strong. Thank you. Um, There was a survey that came out last week, the 2022 Mood of the Boardroom Survey. 
Here's one about you. 73% of respondents agreed that Ms Nicola Willis has presented herself as a credible future Minister of Finance. Some 21% were unsure, just 6%. No, 73%. That's a heck of a backing there. How do you feel about that? Oh, look, it's it's good to see. I guess it's a bit like getting a school report. <laughs> and it's pleasing to see that business leaders think that Nationals' plans are credible. I'm conscious that all of New Zealand needs to believe that our plans are credible. And that's the mission that me and Chris Luxon are on. But it is important, actually, that business backs whoever they want to be in government and their policies. Because ultimately, if we want New Zealand to be wealthier and for people to be paid more, and to have better jobs, then we do need growing businesses. So, yeah, I was pleased to get that feedback. Mm. Do you think that businesses has, have lost confidence in this government? Yes, businesses have lost confidence in this government. And that's because this government has failed to deliver on the commitments it's made. It's not getting value out of the increased spending it's doing, nor is it driving results from government activity. It's added a lot of regulation and cost, threatening to do a lot more of that. And that means when businesses look to the future, they don't have the confidence they need to invest and to grow. And that's a worry for all of us. So it's when, if you can just clear it up for me, that when you say there that they're not getting value from their spending, how are they not getting value? And, and how do you, I mean, how should they be getting value out of these? Well, since Labor came to office, they've increased spending by 70%. So you have to look at every area and say, well, are we seeing 70% better results? Let's take education. Well, actually, in education, fewer children are attending school regularly, and those who are there typically aren't getting as good a literacy and numeracy achievement. And our hospitals, our emergency waiting rooms are more overrun and less elective surgery is being performed across a range of public services. You know, I think of housing. There, the waiting list has quadrupled for a state house. There hasn't been the results that you would expect to see because I think all of us accept there should be government investment and vital government services in order to ensure more Kiwis get what they need. But actually, this government spent the money it just hasn't got the results. Right. So you would spend the same amount of money, but we would see more teachers, more nurses, you know, for example. Well, what we want to do is ensure that every dollar of government spending, hmm. we are maximising its impact. And that means that we will be setting clear targets. We will be having clear accountability for who's responsible for delivering on those targets. And we'll be ensuring that when we make policy changes, they actually deliver results because it's not good enough to just say we've spent more money and we really care about this. You actually have to make a positive change on the ground. That was National's Deputy Leader, Nicola Willis. It is a, about, 12 to, about 12 to 6, we'll call it that. But holy guacamole. They have found burrito. So after 11 days lost in Auckland's Botanic Gardens, the three-year-old toy poodle was spotted by a dog walker on a riverbank, shivering, hungry and badly dehydrated but alive. His owners, Grace and Isaac Leola, uh, who out of desperation had been sleeping in the gardens, had an emotional reunion with their much-loved family member yesterday. Matthew Tunison has the story. On Auckland's many lost pet websites, the story of Burrito the Missing Poodle has captivated the city's dog lovers, with dozens heading to the Botanic Gardens and adjoining Totara Park to join the search. 
Already a bit of a celebrity with thousands of followers on his Instagram page, Burrito disappeared while playing with another dog in the off-leash section of the sprawling gardens. Among those closely following the saga were dog lovers Lisa Webster and her friend Amanda Tewake, who decided to try their luck early Monday afternoon. Well, it was a bit of a fluke because we she had her big dog Odin with her yeah. and we sort of went had a look around sort of under a bridge sort of thing as you go towards David Ave under the bridges and we come back and we were going to turn right to go back towards the dog park but there was quite a few dogs coming that were off leash so we were like oh we'll go straight ahead down this way to sort of avoid them and then so we decided to just sort of have a look like while we were walking down have a look along that side of the stream and yeah I just looked in and I was like you know just sort of didn't want to call his name because they said don't call his name and then I just saw this little bit of movement on the side of the stream and um, I was like oh my god I found him oh my god poor old burrito was perched on a muddy shelf on the far side of the Puhinui stream obscured by thick foliage Lisa immediately searched online for the owner's number and got hold of Grace. I, don't, I think she didn't believe me. Yeah, she wanted, um, we saw once everything was over and we were walking back to the car that she um, had messaged my friend's phone that we rung off asking for photos, like straight after we got off the phone. Can you send photos? Because she yeah. wanted to make sure that it was him. Yeah. Did you like put a jacket around yeah. him? Yeah. yeah, put a jacket around him and just cuddled him and kissed him and <laughs> tried to give him water, <laughs> but yeah, he didn't want anything. Was, was he, yeah. he was just really shaky and then... Um, when the owner come running, running towards us, his tail started wagging, and yeah, yeah, Amazing. it was a beautiful sight to see. And when she arrived to, oh. to see her doggy, what was that like? A lot of tears, yeah, a lot of tears. Here's what it meant to Grace and Isaac Leola. When the lady said, like, oh, my friend is there just holding burrito, I was like, <laughs> like, I was like in tears, mm. like. Uh, oh the, my god. Our, my heart beats so so like, fast. I just can't believe that Burrito is actually there with the lady. Uh, uh yeah. I so even knelt down like I can't yeah. believe that. I was know? just like you guys are angels like sent from above. Yeah. Like it feels like a dream when I actually saw Burrito like because like I knew like it was Burrito because he was still wearing the harness and his um his collar. So I was like, yeah, that's our Burrito. That's our baby. That's my baby. Mm. The couple took Burrito to the Manico After Hours Veterinary Clinic, where he was kept overnight for observation. The small dog had lost a whole kilogram in weight and was severely dehydrated. He's been shivering. Like shaking, and yeah. they are very, very tired. So they're going to keep him overnight and give him like um, IV fluids. IV yeah, yeah. But from the photo, he looks okay. Um, it's just because he's fluffy. He looks okay because he's fluffy, but he's so skinny. Like, I can feel his bones, so, yeah. Yeah, he smells as well. <laughs> and he's covered in mud. Yes, Covered yes. in mud. The couple's extended family also arrived at the clinic to share in the happy moment. Here's Isaac's sister, Ebes Leola. That's the best feeling yeah. today, eh, to yeah. see you reunited. Yeah. Oh, I can't explain it. Eleven days in that park. Eleven days, yeah. Our mental health will go back to normal. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> oh yeah, when he's back at home. Beautiful. Let's go to Russia now uh, with the sad news of a mass school shooting has uh, taken place in the city of Izhiv. Uh, 
Izhvevsk. Oh, sorry, I've pronounced that horribly wrong, but Stuart Smith knows how to pronounce that right, and he is with me right now uh, from Moscow. Uh, kia ora, Stuart. Thank you very much for this. Where, where was the school shooting, and, and what is the latest? Yeah, it's Izhevsk. It's Thank a you. very small city, even within Russia. Many people won't know about it. It's got about 600,000 residents, which by Russian standards is not a large city, and it was in that uh, regional capital where earlier in the day, uh, 15 people were killed, 11 of them children, according to the latest reports from the investigative committee, with around 30 people injured while that happened. Again, most of them kids. It's an unusual thing in Russia, certainly compared to the United States. There were only two last year. This means now, unfortunately, a second this year. The investigative committee, noting that he had a swastika on his shirt when conducting the attack, uh, suggests that they will be looking into any potential adherence to neo-fascist views and Nazi ideology. But before being arrested, he did kill himself at the school before investigators arrived. The Russian president says he sends his deep sympathies to all those who have lost loved ones in what he described as an inhuman terrorist act. And he also said doctors, psychologists and neurosurgeons will be sent from Moscow to Izhevsk, where there'll be a day of mourning on Thursday. Oh, sad, horrible news. Um, obviously, the, the war uh, looms heavily over everything else. How are people um, continuing to react to President Putin's conscript, uh, conscription plans? Yeah, it's been six days now and the queues at the borders to leave Russia have not decreased. You can now still get air uh, flights out, get a ticket for a flight out of Russia. But the land borders, especially that with Georgia, has only got longer. So now between 24 to 36 hours wait at that border. It's obviously the cheaper option, you should understand, to leave Russia rather than flying with tickets so incredibly expensive now. I was looking earlier, 10 to 20 times more expensive to get to a country with a visa-free regime for Russian citizens. Again, the Kremlin saying it has no plans to close the border. There's no legislation that would allow it to close the border. But people not taking that at face value if they do not want to get conscripted into the Russian forces and immediately, well, after two weeks of training, at least sent to fight in Ukraine. There are 25 million reservists on the books that could theoretically be brought up. So even if uh, a few tens of thousands do end up managing to leave Russia, as Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, said uh, to the Russian president Vladimir Putin earlier, that's not so bad. And he said they will probably all want to come back eventually anyway. Actually, you, you mentioned that there. I know that uh, the Belarusian uh, president had been meeting uh, with uh, President Putin. How important is uh, Lukashenko's support during this war? Yeah, it's been vital. I mean, uh, Belarus was the country through which Russian forces went through after the supposed military drills to enter northern Ukraine, which is only um, which only meant they had a few hundred kilometers to get to Kiev. And so without that, it would have been a lot harder. And since then, Lukashenko has made kind of making up noises with Ukraine, has suggested he would like to return to some sort of set of normal relations. But it's hard to see how that will happen when he's considered to have facilitated uh, the so-called special military operation. He discusses a lot with Russian President Vladimir Putin. A meeting like this is by no means unusual. They said today, in particular, they're discussing economic affairs, notably that Western sanctions prevent Belarus and Russia from exporting fertilizers. That's his claim. The reality is that there are no sanctions on fertilizer in itself, but people dealing with Belarus and Russia are far more wary about buying from both countries. But Belarus has been important for Russia economically since 2014, when Russia was first sanctioned for the annexation of Crimea. And it looks like that relationship still going on with Belarus able to import stuff and then sell it to Russia, which Russia can't get directly.
Okay. Edward Snowden, uh, such a huge character uh, the last uh, decade or so. Tell me about this. He's just been granted Russian citizenship. I'm wondering, what is that? Is that so they can conscript him to, to send him off there because they're trying to get as many as they can? I'd say this was the immediate reaction to people in <laughs> Russia. What's going on? Do they need as many people as possible? But uh, <laughs> according to his lawyer, this won't mean he's eligible because he hasn't gone through that mandatory military service that all the other Russian citizens from the age of around 18 to 27 have to do at some point in that period. So he's not eligible. Having said that, there have been numerous examples of other people without having done military service being conscripted. So it's no guarantee, to be fair. But it, there was there were signs that this could be coming in 2020 when Edward Snowden got permanent residency rights, which would be the step before getting citizenship. And now, along with other 72 other people, he has received it directly from the Russian president. And uh, there's been no comment from him, nor the Kremlin in particular. It was just noticed in the regular update of who's been granted Russian citizenship. Stuart, I saw uh, some breaking news just before Russia's FSB security service saying it's detained the Japanese consul in Vladivostok. Um, do, Do we know any more about that? Yeah, so all of the information comes from the FSB, so we can only go by what they're saying. But they say a consul called Motoki Tatsunori, who was uh, in charge of political affairs in Vladivostok, an eastern port city, properly far east. Um, And they say that he had been passing on information about the way Russia was dealing with these sanctions uh, to uh, Western officials for money. That's the claim. And the information was of limited distribution. So he's broken the rules there. Now, of course, you can't arrest a diplomat. They are immune. But under international law, what they can be uh, punished with is expulsion. And so that's what the FSB, which is in charge of the border in Russia, has said. He's got 48 hours to leave. Uh, We haven't heard though from Tokyo about uh, their take on the story. Uh, Stuart, very much appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Uh, That is Stuart Smith, who was with us from Moscow. Finally, some of your feedback uh, this morning. Uh, New houses all over Auckland, massive spending on health and education. Businesses can't get labour and have to pay more. Quit moaning. Bull. Pucky. Oh, from the Nats as usual. Uh, Regards, Murray. Uh, And uh, this one here comes in. Nathan, can you tell Nicola Willis the government should never be run like a business? A business is run to make profit for the few, not the many. And frankly, after the Sam Uffindel lack of transparency, anything National says should be taken with a grain of salt. Thank you all for your feedback this morning. 2101 is where we always do it. Morning Report is next with Guyon and Corin. Hey, the double act are coming at you uh, from all of us here at First Up have yourselves a, a fantastic day and we will be back in your ears a popo.